You're listening to Next Platform Radio for today, March 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Nicole Himsoth. Hey, so I hate to start the program off as Debbie Downer here, but at the time of this recording on Monday afternoon Eastern, the Dow has fallen 8.1%, tumbling nearly 2,100 points. If we close at that level, it'll be the worst day for the Dow since October 1987. Happy thoughts, everyone. Happy thoughts. We can at least distract and hopefully inform you today. However, on the program, we'll take a deep dive into the two leading server makers numbers to get a sense of future infrastructure spending and deployment trends. After that, we'll talk to Dr. Jeremy C. Smith of Oak Ridge National Lab about his team's work developing a treatment, not a vaccine, a treatment for the coronavirus using the Summit Supercomputer at Oak Ridge National Lab and molecular dynamics modeling at massive scale. We'll end with some insights about being remote. More on that to come. All of this and more on the way. Thanks for listening. So like a lot of you, we've been watching the impact on the server market from everything that's happening right now, most of it due to coronavirus concerns. Two leading indicators that we follow closely, even in good times, are the the numbers from Dell and HPE, because even in those better times, they're bellwethers for a lot of trends in infrastructure. And no matter what's going on in the world, this is a rocky business. And, you know, look at last year, for instance. Dell's infrastructure group had revenues down 7.5% for the year. I mean, their their servers and networking business, which is mostly servers, was down 14%. Their storage business was flat. And Dell aside, the server business in general had a rough first and second quarter. And then it, then it kind of bounced back a little bit. I don't know about this year. It's going to be a wild ride, at least if the current state of things is any indication. And by the way, it's not all about coronavirus either. It's just a tough business. So, you know, both HPE and Dell are focused on large enterprise, right? The reason why we pay so much attention to Dell and HPE is because whatever's going on in the larger economy tends to affect these two companies in particular more. That's why they're a leading indicator. And that's why they're a leading indicator in ways that the hyperscale companies and the cloud builders aren't. I mean, those folks get processors before anybody else. They can set their own pace and their business is often immune to these effects. So... You know, the, at the next platform, I mean, certainly we watch things from a technical and market standpoint, but what we're really doing is watching what the big companies, the Dells and the HPEs are doing so we can predict what might happen next. So with all that in mind, I wanted to pick up this conversation with our own Timothy Prickett Morgan. He just wrote a piece of analysis on, on this very topic and theme called the serious business of being a server OEM. And he goes in depth on some of these numbers and makes some of his own projections. And I think it's it's definitely worth a conversation today, especially on this uh, bad market Monday. Let's just put it that way. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. So let's let's dive into the numbers here, maybe starting with HPE's Q1 numbers for 2020 and think about what they might mean. They're not great, right? But there are some bright spots. And and I think a lot of these um, have to do with the Exascale news coming up. The Cray acquisition brought a lot to the table for HPE. Of course, none of that revenue will be recognized until the machines are accepted, which is some time off. But what are you seeing and, and what do these things indicate? So 
Intel's own server business was off 7% in the fourth quarter. And the, and the numbers for Dell and HPE both end in January of 2020, and it's sort of the closest analogy you can get to a fourth quarter of 2019 number. Um, both Dell and HPE said there were definitely effects from uh, the coronavirus outbreak. Um, HPE said that they had supply chain problems, straight up. Uh, Dell said that their business in China was down 35% in the quarter. And if you look at the rest of the world, it was only down 5%. So there's the impact in China right there. Um, and in the rest of the world, most of that decline was in North America. And, um, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know how much of a leading indicator that decline in North America is, but, um, both companies said that there was a pullback amongst large enterprises and, uh, large enterprises are risk averse in general. So they, again, leading indicator when they react, they often react early and they often react rather severely. So we'll see how it plays out. So if you look at um, if you look at HPE for the quarter, their compute business, which means mostly ProLiant servers, was down fifteen point eight percent to three billion and change. Um, and their their operating income fell by exactly the same amount. Uh, their their new HPC and MCS, so that's high performance computing, like we know it, simulation and modeling, and I guess to a certain extent some AI woven into it. And MCS is Mission Critical Systems, and that's Superdome X, uh, you know, the uh, Superdome Flex mashup of SGI and Superdome X that they created two years ago, um, and a smattering of other kinds of machines like the Apollo uh, series of high-density machines that are sometimes used in HPC, but often used in for storage and other applications. Uh, that business uh, was actually up. They had $823 million in sales, up 5.6%. But that up is probably due to Cray being in the numbers for the first time. So that business is obviously going to grow in the coming years. They've got over $2 billion worth of exascale machines that are going to come online. Uh, and revenue will probably be recognized a little bit in 2021. Uh, a bunch in 2022 and another bunch in 2023 when, because these guys only get to book their revenue when the machine is accepted. That's the, the thing to remember is that um, Hewlett Packard server business uh, is five eighths the size of Dell's. So together they represent um, a very large portion of that, you know, that enterprise server buying that we're talking about. And a chunk of of HPC and um, and AI spending as well, sometimes at larger clouds, whatever. But um, I I think that the thing to remember is that when things get bad, and they may get bad, they may not. They may get bad for a lot of other reasons. You know, coronavirus might be causing everybody to think about some of the structural problems they have in their own businesses. And it might be a cause for them to pause and have a rethink about what they're going to do. We certainly saw that during the Great Recession, which started in December of 2007 and didn't really get rolling until 2008 and was really severe in 2009. Um, at that time, um, large systems were still being bought in, in a pretty good clip, you know, mainframes and big Unix machines. Uh, the x86 market was large, but it wasn't dominant like it is now. 
Uh, but what happened is everybody stopped spending on x86 servers that were in flight at that time. As soon as this got really bad and everybody was really clear that it was going to be really bad, all of a sudden the market's down 30, 35% year on year. And that happened for the better part of the year. And, and it kept being bad until um, companies used up the capacity that they had on site. One of the things that made them be able to use their capacity for a longer period of time than they might otherwise have done uh, was the advent of virtualization and particularly from uh, VMware, which is, was in the right place at the right time with a credible enterprise-grade virtualization solution for x86 servers at exactly the moment that everybody wanted to stop spending on servers and get more work out of the servers they had. So, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that VMware takes off like a rocket uh, at that time. And then as virtualization features were added to the systems to make it run better, it became the normal thing. Um, so in the enterprise, almost all the servers are virtualized, except where they, they can't be. But for those back-end workloads, databases, uh, you know, infrastructure stuff, SharePoint, you know, that kind of stuff, that's all virtualized. A lot of, a lot of desktops are streamed with VDI and that's all virtualized. So, you know, this has been a great business for VMware. And what I'm thinking, if this does get bad, is, well, what's, what's going to change? You know, what's going to be the thing that changes at this time? Will this cause people to go to containers quicker? I don't know. Um, that usually involves a rewrite of applications, which is something that people aren't going to want to do at a time when the economy is uncertain. So, you know, I don't know how it's going to play out this time. That was an easy one. You could double the utilization, sometimes triple the utilization on your machines, and then, you know, forego one or two upgrade cycles of servers until you ran out of gas again. Um, I don't, I don't see a technology that's going to slip in just like that and and solve that problem if we all pull back. The other thing is that uh, the to think about is that you know Google is you know we're going to still use the internet and Google and Facebook are still going to, you know give us information and amuse us and their workloads are not going to change. Um, it might even get more intense for them. So their buying is going to continue is my guess. They have their own cycles. They just went through a, a boom cycle and the end of 2018 and, and the early 2019 was terrible. And, and maybe we've got another boom coming up. It doesn't look like it. Um, but, you know, spending has picked up, but, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Well, I mean, on, on that note, one thing we should consider is that, you know, unlike during the Great Recession, we have a lot of hyperscale companies that can help prop up the market. <laughs> I mean, it may just be that the enterprise piece of all of this um, goes to hell in a handbasket. And, uh, you know, it's it's hard to say what will happen, but uh, that seems, you know, that seems like a likely course of events if in, if indeed things get bad. And let's hope not. This is a this is a tough business, and it has been a tough business for a long time, and it will continue to be a tough business. And I am I'm personally grateful that there are people that still make servers, and and make them in such a way that you don't have to have an engagement with them with you know a hundred thousand machines a quarter, like you have to do with the ODMs. That you know they engineer things to reach a broad. Uh, variety of use cases and a broad spectrum of supported software and their support matrices at, at HPE and Dell are huge and in a way that, you know, a Quanta 
or Inventec or you know, YWIN or Foxconn, they don't have to do that. They've got a customer with a machine and it's all specified out. These guys have to actually make sure that all this stuff continues to run with every generation. It's a lot of work and they don't, and their finances bear this out. They don't make a lot of money out of this. There's not a lot of net income left when it's done. And, and the net income that is in the server business ends up going to Intel predominantly. And there's some that goes to the flash makers and the memory makers. And there's some that goes to Microsoft and some to Red Hat, but there's very little that goes to Dell and HPE. And, you know, a sensible person would say, well, you know, why on earth are you doing this? You know, I mean, it, there's just so much work, so much chase, and so little money left over when you're done. Well, I, I'm personally, because I think the economy is a different thing. I'm glad when people do things and they don't necessarily make money out of it, because I think we have unreasonable expectations for infinite profitability. And IBM is the classic example where they think, you know, they can grow net income uh, at twice the rate of the growth of revenue for decades on end. Well, that, that's not sustainable. And it's not, it's not sensible to think that this kind of business can yield that kind of result. So sometimes, you know, we just have to think about these companies as they do a good job for a lot of people. There are millions of customers who use their products and we should be happy that they're still doing it. I am. And, uh, you know, they don't get credit for doing a hard job. That's not going to yield the kind of profits that a Facebook or a Google ad business is going to yield. And yet they keep at it. There's honor in that. There's been a lot of talk in recent weeks about the development of a coronavirus vaccine. This is something that is certainly quite some time away, a year or more. One thing that's not garnering the same number of headlines, however, is work toward a direct treatment, a coronavirus pill, one that can stop the virus in its tracks. This is groundbreaking work. And as anyone who follows HPC or supercomputing or molecular dynamic simulations, you'd know that this is very computationally demanding stuff. Uh, research running on the world's most powerful summit supercomputer at Oak Ridge National Lab uh, is showing that there might be a way to halt the virus in its steps. Researchers there have identified 77 small molecule drug compounds that could contribute to helping in the fight against the virus. The Summit Supercomputer sim- uh, simulated more than 80,000 compounds to screen for those most likely to bind to the main spike protein of the coronavirus. That's the, the thing that sticks out all over and, make, and gives it that weird, uh, freaky sun appearance. But this would render it unable to infect host cells and it would literally kill it. Okay, very important stuff. Here to talk about this work is one of the pioneers of this effort, uh, Dr. Jeremy C. Smith, Governor's Chair at the University of Tennessee and Director of the University of Tennessee and Oak Ridge National Labs Center for Molecular Biophysics. Also here, we have Dr. Nicholas Smith, a postdoc fellow at Oak Ridge National Lab to talk about some of the computational challenges. So, Dr. Jeremy C. Smith, you have a, an extent, extensive background in molecular dynamics and, and obviously biophysics. Give us the high level here to start, please. So, um, this is drug discovery, and it's uh, uh, responding to the urgency of the need to find a drug against the new coronavirus. And uh, one approach to drug discovery is to... Um, do what's called structure-based drug discovery, which is, as you can imagine, based on structures. And the structures that we're talking about now are protein structures, uh, 
what a virus does, like the coronavirus, is it um, um, it buries its way into host cells, like human cells, hijacks the genetic machinery of the host cell to make copies of proteins that the virus once made, and then the proteins do the job that the virus wants, which is to make more virus particles. Now, these proteins um, have three-dimensional structures, architectures that one can model on the computer. And that's uh, what we did. We modeled the structures of, of the proteins, and one in particular for the article that you read. And this protein is called a spike protein. It's a spike on the coronavirus, which uh, um, it gives it its name, it makes the corona appear on the pictures of the virus. And the spike is what makes the first contact with the human cells. So we thought, let's try and stop the spike from working, from uh, making contact with the human cells. So we uh, made a three-dimensional model on the computer of the spike. And here's where the HPC comes in, because Nicholas Smith, the postdoc who worked on this, um, by the way, he had the flu when he was running the calculations. He uh, ran the calculations on, on Summit, the, which is the world's most powerful supercomputer, and it's here at Oak Ridge National Lab. And Summit has uh, fast GPUs and a very quick interconnect between them. And this uh, enables us to do um, simulation models of the spike protein um, very quickly. And uh, the technique used for that uh, is a statistical mechanical technique called temperature replica exchange molecular dynamics, T-R-E-M-D, where Nicholas puts dozens of replicas of this spike protein on individual nodes of the Summit supercomputer. And he did what's called, he's correcting me now, sorry. Each one takes multiple nodes, right. So correct myself, the, the, uh, each um, replica, a picture of the protein, if you like, was spread over several nodes and was running and talking to all the other nodes. Uh, that's uh, this uh, replica exchange business. And uh, this allows us to very quickly come up with a dynamical simulation model of the protein, including all the internal motions. Those internal motions change the shapes and characteristics of binding pockets to which drugs could bind. So that extensive simulation model um, was possible in one day on Summit, whereas on a community cluster machine, it would take a month. And we really want these results to be done as quickly as possible for the coronavirus because one needs to come up with results quickly that can then be experimentally tested and iterate between uh, computation and experiment. And so that's what the stage we're in now. And so, uh, Miklas, you, you were closely involved in the computation aspect here. Is this is this something built on top of a standard molecular dynamics package? And and if so, I'm guessing you're using GPUs. I mean, that that system is very GPU-dense, and, and molecular dynamics uh, it is just a prime fit for, for a lot of those workloads. 
So we use the GPUs. We use a program called uh, Gromax, which is a simulation software that takes advantage of the GPUs, and it, it can use all of them on the node um, to varying degrees depending on the protein you're simulating. But in this case, yes, we use the full node with all the GPUs that we could get on it, which I believe they have six per node. Well, I so I, I was making do with what I could get to run. I was trying to make it run fast. So I was. I was uh, not scaling it to the maximum amount of scalability. I was trying to, you know, take advantage of the queue time. So I was using, you know, about, I'm trying to remember how many nodes I ended up using for this. I don't remember how many nodes I used. I didn't have to use that, I didn't have to use that many because each one was pretty powerful. Then I had, just had to use a lot for different, for the number of replicas. So I'm, I'm guessing I probably used around four or 500 nodes, but it may have been a bit more than that. It, because it, it, I was trying to, Trying to get it done fast. If you sit, if I request big jobs, you can get, you know, you have to sit in queues so that you have to make sure you you do cost benefit of which one you go with. But you know, they're pretty fast anyways, even in the queue. So it was, I think I was doing like 512 nodes, but it may have been more than that. I'm, I'm not entirely sure at this point. I'd have to go. I'd have to go pull up my my job submission scripts, and I don't have those on me at the moment. I mean, each node has such great performance that when you just the more replicates you have, the more nodes you can take up, and then just that that actually enhances the sampling more too, right? So the more replicates you have, the more sampling you get, also. So it's, I mean, the 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 fact that you have so many GPUs and you have a fast internet connect really really benefits, right? Because the if you didn't have that, if you don't have the inter, if you don't have the interconnect, you're stuck waiting for the replicate communication to occur, and that slows you down. And if you didn't have the fast nodes to begin with nothing could get done in the first place. So you really have to have both in place to, to get high performance for these types of simulations. So it, it really does benefit to have both the interconnect and the, the GPUs present. Is this building on existing work? Is, is there, there are other things that look in some ways like a coronavirus uh, with the spike structure, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. On- so structurally speaking, this is, quite similar to the SARS virus, right? Just just with the, the spikes and such. So there was quite a bit of modeling work that went on during the SARS epidemic uh, of, a, of a similar nature, although quite a bit less computational capacity to, to back that research. How much reinventing of the wheel do you need to do from either software or hardware platforms uh, or even a co-design point of view to get this to, to work? There's not much reinventing of the wheel done here. We're we are applying existing methods um, in in a novel way, a novel combination of methods. Um, but you know, we we're not writing new computer programs as yet. Uh, we're we're running them on a fast computer, and you know, we have looked, optimized them for that a bit. Um, but um, you know, the methods are have been developed by many groups and are out there and uh, um, used by many groups. I don't think anybody else will be using the combination of methods we are for this particular coronavirus problem. So what are the next steps? And, and you gave us a sense of where things are, but what happens now? Well, as, we, as, as we speak, the calculations are still running. Um, you know, it's not a one and done thing. And uh, we improve them. We improve the simulation models 
and we improve the docking of compounds and we improve the way we rank the docking of compounds. So that just goes on and on. And uh, we'll look for more targets, not just the spike. The virus has other proteins that it produces and nefariously uses to uh, make more copies of itself. Uh, we'll try and stop them from working as well. And we, uh, our suggested compounds will be experimentally tested. Uh, experimentalists who have the virus uh, will work on it and uh, see what's wrong and what's right. And with that information in mind, we can refine the models. So just a little side topic for your Monday. Um, a lot of you may not have experienced the joys and pains from working remotely regularly, and you're about to find out. So a lot of the companies we follow are sending folks home for obvious reasons, the coronavirus concerns, and it could provide some insight about how to manage this and, and manage your work-life balance is Frank Suglia of BitTitan, a cloud migration company. He's been invited because his teams have been remote from day one, and he's quite used to it, and he's seen some of the problems and challenges and also bright spots of, of remote work. So I asked him to share his experiences and some advice as we head into a new work week. Well, I think it's important to uh, delineate between work and home, for sure. Um, and the way I do that is I have a, a separate office and when I'm in it, I work. And when I'm not in it, I close the door and leave my laptop behind and I'm not working. And that helps me, you know, separate work from the rest of my life. Um, regarding connecting with people, um, I use technologies like Teams by Microsoft, um, WhatsApp, texting, phone, basically all of the above in order to connect with my team, which is uh, remote throughout the world. Um, and, you know, we do regular team meetings. Uh, we have weekly one-on-ones. So there are some structured things that keep us communicating on a regular basis, but I encourage the team to collaborate. And uh, very often that means that they will reach out to other members of the team or will use a team distribution list to ask questions and get feedback. Uh, so really, I, I try to drive uh, additional communication so that not only uh, does it enhance the skill sets of the team, but it also kind of keeps a regular dialogue and sort of sets that kind of cadence so that, you know, it's not, uh, it's not abnormal to reach out to anyone at any time during the day. Um, you know, a lot of the companies or customers that I communicate with are also kind of remote workers. Uh, or, the, you know, or very often they're consultants that, you know, maybe have a home office but are out on the road uh, servicing clients. You know, they, they understand how it is sometimes difficult to coordinate connecting with others um, in a remote scenario. So, you know, I think as if you set the expectation up front with your coworkers and some of your customers, if possible, you know, that kind of diffuses the situation. And then, you know, you kind of work from there. At the end of the day, you know, there's a job that has to get done. And, and I think, you know, you, you got to figure out creative ways to, to go about doing it. Um, and, you know, if, if that's not possible, you know, maybe there's a, you know, there's an alternate 
role for you somewhere. You, you've been doing this for a while. You've had a remote-based organization. Uh, do you think that, what percentage of companies do you think could go this route and be perfectly fine and, and it really have no impact on, on productivity? Like, it, like, is this maybe this big event cause for companies to seriously reconsider? I mean, we keep going through phases where it seems like, you know, this kind of comes up as a topic and then fades into the background, but it's front of mind for everybody right now. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think certain companies that are, you know, uh, you know, very, you know, sort of information based, right? Like, so for example, companies that and roles that are really about, um, you know, collaborating around certain solutions or certain topics, I think they could easily uh, benefit from, you know, working remotely or having remote teams more so than than uh, on premise or in an office. I mean, you know, the, the thing that that immediately you you lose when going from uh, an office to remote is that sort of like casual collaboration that happens, you know, in the hallway, in the lunchroom, whatever. But I think there's easy ways around that through, you know, regular communication and fostering things to to get people together. Um, so, I, yeah, I think a lot of companies could certainly benefit from it. I, and it seems like from a work life balance perspective, I bet you a lot of employees out there would, would really appreciate it. So I want to, I want to end on, on a, a remote type topic here, just, just to round out uh, that interview before, but I did a poll on Twitter. Um, it only got 52 votes, but I think that the results are still telling. Um, I asked people, I just said, major events going online only. What's your plan when and if you tune in? And here are the options. Watch most or all. You know, think, by the way, think like a GTC, a GPU technology conference, or if the Open Compute Summit had decided to do this this month, you know, like what would you do? So watch most or all. Watch select sessions, or I won't watch it at all. So go ahead and think about how you would answer that for a minute. <laughs> I'll tell you the results. So 13.5% said that they would watch most or all of it. Okay. Uh, 17.3% said they won't watch it at all. They won't even bother. (laughs) And almost 70%. So 69.2% said they would watch select sessions. So we're just, uh, we're just thinking about these things. I'm sure you are too. You know, uh, the value of being, at an event or at a physical location, you know, what is it? And if it's really about content, do you need a whole day to absorb that? You know, or, or like I've gone to things, and I'm sure a lot of you have too, where I'm like, I'm here basically for these three things. <laughs> and I couldn't get a pre-brief on it or talk to them about it in advance and it, it wasn't going to be published. But anyway, 70% of you say, of, of all 52 of you say select sessions, you would totally do it. Anyway, just a little side point. And that's a wrap for March 9th, 2020. See you back here tomorrow, and hopefully we have better economic and other news to talk about. See you then. Bye.